You found a podcast where you'll hear the truth And we will praise Jesus' name We stand for the Bible and won't back down from it Although it don't bring much fame Some folks will like it, some will try to deny it But God's word will always stand true Hello, friends and faithful listeners. It's time for the Pod King Bible Study. I'm your co-host, Donald King, and I'm joined by the host of this study, Brother Donnie King. On this podcast, we study the Bible from its original languages so we can understand the Word of God more clearly. We look at current events and news in light of Scripture, and we also examine some of the things going on within our culture from a biblical perspective. This is Monday, February the 5th, episode number 154, The Woman Taken in Adultery, John 8 and 3 through 11. In our last episode, we took up the issue concerning whether there are other gods or not. We discussed what Paul taught concerning them, and it led us back to Genesis and how we are made in the image of God. We also talked about the divine counsel of God and how it was similar to what was found at Ugarit. We then looked at how these council members have some kind of say in the affairs of life, such as the watchers of Daniel. We spoke about the total plan of God for all people to become believers and therefore enter sonship under the Father. We believe this episode will be one you certainly don't want to miss, so please give it a listen. In today's study, we cover one of the most infamous passages within the book of John. This section is under much scrutiny by scholars, and we discuss why this is and give our opinion on the matter. We examine every angle we could think of concerning this adulterous woman and her situation. The Pharisees want to see what Jesus would do, but he surprised them once again. We believe this setting is so full of grace and mercy, it should compel all who read it to desire to have Christ in their life. If this passage has ever interested you at all, please join in with us today. Now for the teaching of God's Word and the lesson for today, I'll turn it to the host of our podcast, Brother Donnie King. Well, thank you for coming in that virtual door to join us in another biblical journey here at the Pod King Bible Study. Yeah, I'm glad we remembered to leave the door unlocked so they could join us. Oh, don't be so sarcastic from the very get-go. I'm not being sarcastic. I guess I'm just used to the way things used to be. I'll quit living in the past and come on into 2024 with the rest of us. Well, if I'm not mistaken, I am in 2024 with you in bodily present, but I think we lose a lot when we just run off and leave all the old things behind. Well, I'm not saying we need to leave everything behind us. I was just using some of our modern terms to engage with people. Well, whatever you do, don't forget the old paths. Jeremiah said we need to seek them out and walk in them, for this is the good way. Hey, well, I agree with you, and I also agree with Jeremiah as well. (laughs) But, you know, I've seen a lot of people walk away from the old past through the years, and it really saddened my heart. But thank God for those who still know where the old paths are. That's true. The old path still leads home, which is a reference to heaven. Well, it looks like we're going to be settling into some pretty significant territory today. Yeah, we're going to be going through some deep waters for sure. You know, adultery is a topic that a lot of people have just decided to leave alone in the past, what, 15, 20 years. But when I was young, the preachers preached against it often. Yeah, this topic has almost become taboo in a lot of churches today and even in our holiness churches. The culture in which we live pretty much accepted adultery years ago, and now it seems like our churches are following the culture. Well, reckon how long it'll be before the churches accept sodomy. 
Well, seeing as how our culture has already accepted it already, it probably won't be much longer. But I believe that those who are true to God and his word will never accept sin of any kind. I believe that. So when are you going to get us going? Well, I reckon I will right now. And we'll begin by reading this whole passage. We're going to be studying John 8 and 3 through 11. And the scribes and Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they say unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now Moses and the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what sayest thou? This they said, tempting him that they might have to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground as though he heard them not. So when they continued asking him, he lifted up himself and said unto them, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And they which heard it being convicted by their own conscience went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had lifted up himself and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? She said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. I want to begin by looking at the first three verses fairly close. The scribes and the Pharisees, they bring to Jesus a woman that was taken in adultery. When they set her in the midst, they say right directly to him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Then they try to pin him down. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned, but what sayest thou? Hey, while were you reading that portion of scripture, I had an interesting thought hit me. Okay. How would you like to go from teaching and expounding the Word of God and have this kind of situation unfold right before you? Well, I wouldn't like it very much, I can tell you that. But Jesus saw this coming, so it didn't take him by surprise nor catch him off guard. Before we get going very far, though, I do want to say this. I am disappointed to have to inform some of you that the majority of scholars today don't believe that John 7 and 53 through John 8 and 11 is part of the original text. So what that means is, is they don't believe this section should be in our Bibles. You're kidding me. Could this be some of the ways that the devil's trying to get people to accept adultery? Well, it's possible, but let's take a close look at what's happening here. And I think you'll see even more reason people want to do away with this. Not because I agree with them, but because it condemns human flesh. We have the scribes and the Pharisees teaming up for this scheme. That's pretty significant in itself, isn't it? These two groups were usually fighting each other, I thought. They normally are. But these two groups, they've come together. They bring Jesus, a woman taken in adultery. I have several questions regarding the scenario. How did they come up with this woman? How did they catch her in the very act of adultery? You know, one thing I've always wondered is this. What is meant here by act? Well, we'll cover that question in just a moment when we dig into the word meaning. But I have another question to ponder as well while I'm just throwing out questions. Why did they set her in the midst of the congregation? Well, most likely they set her in front of the congregation to make her a public spectacle, I guess, to incite the crowd to push for her stoning. Yeah, I figure they probably thought it would put more pressure on Jesus to have to do something. And so they were pushing him to a pressure point. They recognize him as a didaskalos in the Greek, which is translated as master, but it's much closer to just teacher. Okay, so what's your point about this? Well, they weren't reverencing him. They were just simply addressing him. Let's see. Oh, okay. Well, they went on to explain their case to him, but it appears to me that they left out several key details. Oh, yeah? What about it? Well, the Bible says that this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Where do you reckon she was found? 
And who was she found with? And why is he not present? Yeah, that's some good good questions. And I plan to cover some of that, even though I may not have direct answers for every bit of it. I want to point out something else right here. They refer to Moses as the one who gave them the law. Then they say that he commanded that this woman should be stoned. Well, they were recalling a few different passages, but they were missing one major thing here. Let me read you the passages that they were referencing, and then I'll point out what they're missing. In Leviticus 20 and 10, And the man that committeth adultery with another man's wife, even he that committeth adultery with his neighbor's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. Deuteronomy 22, verse 22, 23, and 24. If a man be found lying with a woman married to an husband, then they shall both of them die, both the man that lay with the woman and the woman. So shalt thou put away evil from Israel. If a damsel that is a virgin be betrothed unto a husband, and a man find her in the city and lie with her, then ye shall bring them both out unto the gate of that city, and ye shall stone them with stones that they die. The damsel, because she cried not, being in the city, and the man, because he hath humbled his neighbor's wife, so shalt thou put away evil from among you. Okay, I think I see what you're saying was missing. The man was to be stoned with the woman. That's exactly right. In every case of adultery that is mentioned in the law that they were referencing, where the woman must be killed, the man must be killed as well. It is impossible to commit the act of adultery by yourself. You can lust after someone by yourself, but that's not the act of adultery. Lust is the essence of the sin of adultery, but it can't be said that lust is the act. The woman was caught, obviously, in an affair or something. And let me tell you, you can't have an affair with no one. <laughs> well, we all know it must have been with someone. Yeah, so they pushed him. They pushed him. They're trying to trap him, but their plan is not really perfectly put together like they think it is. Moses says she should be stoned, but what do you say? They were pitting Jesus's word against Moses's teaching here. Yeah, I think that was part of their plan, wasn't it? If he went against the teaching of Moses, they could label him as a deceiver. I want to break this down and examine several of the words found within these verses. If we don't understand the words that are used, we'll never comprehend what truly took place, nor how to even view this event. The word taken, when it says the woman was taken, is the Greek katalambanome, and it means to be seized, arrested, or unexpectedly found. Well, that really gives some interesting ideas on how we could view this right here. Yeah, but she was taken in adultery. She was seized in adultery. She was arrested in adultery, or she was found unexpectedly in adultery. Now, that word taken in adultery. Adultery is the Greek word moekeia. All right, moekeia means she was having relations with someone who was not her spouse. Second Peter 2 and 14 condemns this, having eyes full of adultery that cannot cease from sin, beguiling unstable souls, a heart they have exercised with covetous practices, cursed children. Well, what about the wording on the act of adultery? Well, they're pressing their case further by telling Jesus they found her in adultery. Then they said, we found her in the very act of adultery. That word act, it's only three letters in the English language, but it's a big Greek word. It's epotaphoro. Epotaphoro means that they caught her while committing the crime. Well, that is a little graphic in its description. It is, but I just have to ask a question here. All right, if they caught her while committing the crime of adultery, how? <laughs> how did they just stumble on somebody in the very act of committing adultery? Well, that is an interesting question. Where was she at that they found her? 
Yeah. Was they walking through somebody's house and stumbled through the bedroom and there they were? Were they openly in the middle of a street somewhere? I mean, really, I'm not trying to be foolish, nor am I trying to be vulgar, but how do you just stumble upon someone committing adultery? There might be an explanation that's very plausible. And if it's true, then the woman may not have been as guilty as you first think that she is. Do what? Well, the word that we see as the very act is normally used in speaking of thievery, which could change the meaning of all of this for us. Oh, boy. Are you fixing to go liberal on us now? No, but it could mean that she was caught trying to seduce someone else's husband. If the act means thievery, that means while you're trying to steal something. She might have been trying to steal someone else's husband. They may not have actually committed the full act as we think in our minds. This would mean that she is found in the very act that begins adultery in many cases. Okay, well, I guess I've never considered that angle before, but I can see how it could be an option. Look, I I want it to be clear for everybody. The sin is still adultery. The woman was still wrong in what she did. I'm not trying to defend what she did or take up for what's going on here. But if this is all that had transpired, this could be the difference between flirting with someone and having relations with somebody. Yeah, well, but sin is still sin no matter what. That's true. That's true. But to me, the greater sin is the consummation of the act. Would you rather find your wife flirting with a guy or find out she's had an affair with him? Well... I don't want to do either one, but I must admit that I'd much rather it be just flirting than an affair, you know, the, the very act. That's right. So I think that it's it's still a very heinous crime or a very bad sin, but at least it's not as bad as it could have been. Could this be linked to why Jesus told her in verse 11 to go and sin no more with the emphasis placed on don't allow yourself to do these things anymore because you could go farther and commit a greater sin? Nah, I don't know. All of this is very new to me, and I'm not sure how to process it. Well, I have another theory that I want to present to you about this situation, which would prove that this was merely a setup from the start. Moses did command those that were caught in the act of adultery to be stoned. But in Deuteronomy 22 and 22 through 24 that I read to you, it specified a betrothed damsel. Oh, okay. And what are you getting at? Well, this speaks of a woman who has not yet consummated her marriage. Jesus responded in accordance with another law found in another set of scriptures, not found in Leviticus and not found in Deuteronomy. But he answers with a wording that's similar to Numbers 5 and 11 through 31, where the Lord was dealing primarily with married women. There's another thing scholars say that show this connects to what Jesus did here in John 8. It's when he wrote on the ground, and that's linked back to Numbers 5 and 23 that I just alluded to. Let me read you that verse so you see what I'm talking about. And the priest shall write these curses in a book, and he shall blot them out with bitter water. It shows that he's writing something. Jesus, in the same setting, gives some counsel, and then he writes on the ground. You think the part about him writing is connected to Numbers 5? I think it could be. So let's go ahead and let's look at verse 6 and 7 together, and then I'll make a few more comments. This they said, tempting him that they might have to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground as though he heard them not. So when they continued asking him, he lifted up himself and said unto them, He that is without sin among you, let him cast the first stone at her. John exposes their sinful motives at this point by telling us that the scribes and Pharisees said all of this because they were tempting him. Tempt is the Greek word peirazzo. Peirazzo means that they were testing him. They were examining him. They was wanting to see what he would say. Well, this is not the only time that they tried him or tempted him. 
No, that's for sure. We find that all throughout the Bible. Go to Matthew 16 and 1, Matthew 19 and 3, Matthew 22 and 18, Luke 11, 54, and numerous other places. They were trying their best to trap him. They were testing him in order that they might find something that they could accuse him with or accuse him of. This is the Greek word categorial, and it interprets as to bring charges against. They were very serious about this. They were trying to get something on him that they could use legally in a court of law. They were looking for a reason they could nail him with breaking the law so they could sentence him. You know, it wasn't really the woman that they wanted to see stoned. In reality, it was Christ. That's exactly right. Rather than answer them, though, Jesus stooped down and began to write on the ground with his finger. You know, that seemed a little strange, but... Could there be a reason behind this? Maybe we should ask, could it be any clearer? I mean, really, I think there's a scripture that defines this for us. It seems to be tightly in line with Jeremiah 17 and 13 and how the Lord said that he would write in the earth all of them who have forsaken him. Let me go there and read this. Jeremiah 17 and 13. O Lord, the hope of Israel, all that forsake thee shall be ashamed, and they that depart from me shall be written in the earth because they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living waters. We could see this as the Lord is asking them, why should I command this woman to be stoned to death when all of you have forsaken me? It was as if he was telling them, I will expose you and your sin as you have exposed this woman and her sin. That's right. Those who turn away from the Lord are sinners. I mean, that's just hands down. Everybody would agree with that. They will have their names written in the earth, or you could even say in the dust. Yeah. Well, the reason for this is that they had rejected the living water that was offered to them. And if you go with the context of John 7 going into John 8, they had just done this the day before. He proclaimed that he was the waters of salvation, the living water, that if any man would come unto him, they could have life. And they rejected him. And he's telling them this the very next day. This is one of the reasons why I am so a Damon. John 7 and 53 through 8 and 1 through 11 must be in the scriptures. It fits perfectly. Remember the other adulterous woman Jesus visited in John 4? She was looking for water also, and Jesus offered her living water that would keep her from thirsting again. Yeah, she left her water pot and went running through the city because of the living water. She was openly proclaiming the one who gave her that water. That's right. She accepted it while these religious men rejected it. Yeah. John says they continued asking him, which implies that they were not going to just let this opportunity slip them by. Well, it also implies that Jesus was totally ignoring those religious leaders. He acted as if he didn't even hear them. That's right. I tell you, it infuriates someone to be ignored. Yeah. But magnify that infinitely when the person who's being ignored thinks there's somebody important. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. Finally, Jesus raised up and he made a statement that ended this whole charade. Well, Jesus always knew what to say to shut down a situation. Yeah, well, he told them to let the one who has no sin cast the first stone at this woman. Paul spoke of something very similar in Romans 2 and 1 when he said that we are without excuse when we judge others as long as we have sin in our own lives. The part about being the first to cast a stone at the woman is taken from Deuteronomy 17 and 7. The Bible says the hands of the witnesses shall be first upon him to put him to death and afterward the hands of all the people. So thou shalt put the evil away from among you. I'm so glad you remember the Old Testament laws better than I do because it sure helps. This makes sense. Well, this is where the hands of the witnesses were to be the first to be laid on the victim. What about this scared them so? How is the hands of the witnesses and he that is without sin connected here? Well, by their accusation of another, which in this case is this woman, They imply that they have no sin of their own. 
kill her for her sin. I don't have any. I'm righteous. Jesus is pointing out here that those who were firsthand witnesses were connected to sin somehow, and they may have even been connected to this same sin. If not in a similar way, this could possibly have been the case with the woman. Yeah, well, could this be why they didn't have both perpetrators all before Christ? Could one of them have been the man? I have wondered that before. They could have been in an actual affair for sure, and they used that setting to try to trip Jesus. Instead of truly showing the sin of the man and have him and the woman both put to death for their sin, they took advantage of the sin and tried to trap Jesus. Here they are using sin to their advantage if this is the case. It could have been a staged affair to give credence to their accusation as well. If they were truly doing this to trap Christ, it's very feasible that there wasn't even a true case of adultery, only a mock case that they were using to try to trap Jesus. Well, there is a problem with that idea, and it's because they brought this woman to be stoned. Well, allow me to ask you a question. I've heard that argument before, but do you think it would have bothered them to see an innocent woman stoned? They were trying to convict an innocent man. That's true. Well, that's a great point. They may very well be the case here. That's true. And I know the very idea that I'm insinuating that this may not have been a credible case of adultery may offend some of you. I'm not saying that it's definitely the case. I'm throwing around some options. I personally lean towards the fact that it was truly adultery, but I can see where all of this could have been a big charade just in order to trap Jesus. Despite all of this, we know that these religious men were very sinful in their arrogance, their pride, and mostly in their rejection of Jesus Christ. Yeah, you got that right. I'm going to go ahead and read verse 8 and 9. And again, he stooped down and he wrote on the ground, and they which heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. Well, once again, Jesus stooped down and wrote something on the ground. That's right. And after hearing what Jesus said and thinking on it, they were all convicted by their consciences. This reminds me of another familiar verse that Paul wrote to us in Romans 2 and 15 which shew the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts the meanwhile accusing or else excusing one another. Well, this proves they knew the law and that they definitely knew right from wrong. The point is that they had just been torched by a simple statement. Yeah, and maybe convicted is a better word than torched, but they were burnt by it either way. Yeah. <laughs> convicted is the Greek word elenchome. Elenchome means to rebuke, to reprove, and to show someone their faults. That's exactly what he just did. This is exactly what took place here, but the word also has one more definition. It means to be exposed. I like it. You know, for Jesus exposed them as sinful because he let them know that he was well aware of their motives. That's right. And he also knew that their motives were sinful. Not only did he know their motives, he knew that their motives were sinful. In their piousness and their feigned righteousness, there was a sinfulness that they couldn't disguise from Jesus. The oldest man that was there turned and he walked out. For just a split second, what do you think all of the others thought? Then the next oldest, all the way down to the youngest man, every one of them did likewise. John says at this point, there was left no one but Jesus and the woman. So did everyone leave the temple or was it just those who were trying to trap Jesus? Well, we can't answer that with 100% surety, but I personally lean to the fact that it was only speaking of the scribes and Pharisees that left. Well, I've heard some people say that everyone left that day because everyone had sin in their life. Yeah, but John says Jesus was left and the woman standing in the midst. My question for them would be this then, in the midst of what? It had to be the congregation who had come to hear Jesus teach. The Greek emiso 
is used for midst right here, and it means to stand among. How can you stand among unless there's others around? Can you stand among yourself? <laughs> no, that's that's impossible. You know, I'll have to remember this because it is a very strong point against the other argument. Yeah, to me, it makes the most sense. Let's read verse 10 and 11. We'll get this thing wrapped up. When Jesus had lifted up himself and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? She said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. Jesus rose up. He saw that the woman was still standing there, but her accusers weren't. He then asked her a question. Hey, where are your accusers? Has none of them condemned you? Well, she told him that no one had condemned her, and then Jesus told her that he didn't condemn her either, and then told her to go and sin no more. That's right. When Jesus said that he didn't condemn this woman, this goes right in line with what he said in Luke 9 and 56, John 3 and 17, and John 12 and 47. He came not to condemn the world, Mm -hmm. but that the world through him might be saved. Well, he didn't come to bring judgment on the world in his first coming. This is what he'll do in his second coming. That's right. And this is what catacorino means, judgment and condemnation. He didn't come to condemn the world. He didn't come to judge them. The world's judged already. God's not waiting to give them judgment. He's already judged them. He knows where they stand today. He doesn't have to wait to the end of time. He knows where they stand right now. But if they receive Christ, their standing will change. Please notice something here. Jesus says, neither do I condemn thee. Notice what he didn't say. Neither do I condemn thy sin. He said, I'm not condemning you. He did condemn the sin. All sin is condemned already. But Jesus came to save us from our sin. Oh, now I love how you brought that out because Jesus is still against all sin. He spoke very plainly when he told them, go and sin no more. That's right. Well, this is like what he told the man who had healed at Bethesda that day in John 5 and 14. He found him in the temple and he says, behold, thou art made whole. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come unto thee. Go and sin no more is linked with an oft-repeated phrase that's found all throughout Scripture. Turn and repent. Are you serious? How can that be? Well, I'm going to give you a list of certain sins and we'll see how it correlates. And I think you'll agree with me. Turn from drinking and drink no more. Turn from using drugs and use drugs no more. Turn from cursing and curse no more. Turn from smoking and smoke no more. Turn from adultery and stay in it. What? No, <laughs> no, no. that doesn't work, does it? No. Uh-oh, we just hit a rock somewhere. <laughs> yeah. I was plowing and I got a little deep, didn't mm-hmm. I? You got carried away. That doesn't work. So we must change it until it fits the parameters of all other sins. Turn from adultery and adulterate no more. Now, you know what adulterate means, don't you? It means to debase something. What is being abased when you commit adultery? It's the marriage covenant. To adulterate something is to debase it by adding another substance. Normally, it's an inferior thing that's added in. That's how it's adulterated. If you want something unadulterated, don't pollute it with anything else. If you want an unadulterated marriage, don't bring anybody else into it. It's between one man, one woman. Amen. The thing added here to cause the adulteration is another relationship. The wording, no more, when he says, go and sin, no more, that's the Greek word, makiti. Makiti means never again. Go and don't ever do this again. In other words, you better not ever do this again. You have been given grace this time, but don't waste your grace. (laughs) I like that. You know, Jesus knew that the scribes and Pharisees wouldn't let her off the hook again. 
That's right. If they ever caught her again, if she truly was committing adultery and they found her again, she'd be dead on the spot. They would drag her out at that moment. If she continued living in her sin, she would eventually die in her sin. That's what we need to keep in mind today. If you continue living in your sin, you will die in your sin. What many people miss here is the one who freed her from death is the only one who can free her from her sin as well. Amen. How about you today, my friends? Have you been freed from sin? Good question. All right, Brother Donnie, we've got a question in here today, and I think it's a good one. Are you ready for it? I think so. I'm I'm always ready for a question, but I really like good questions. <laughs> All right. All right, here we go. The question is, my question concerns the daughter of Zion that is mentioned in Scripture several times. There are 34 verses about this in the Old Testament. Do these verses, or at least some of them, represent the church? Could this be speaking of a certain group of people? As 144,000 of Revelation 7. Okay, I remember the original email that was sent in, and the brother who sent this in said that he wanted to make it clear, first of all, that he didn't believe in replacement theology, nor did he believe in replacing the church in prophecy for Israel. I'll start off by saying this. I want to thank you for your question. And neither do I believe in replacement theology. And I'm glad to hear that you don't either. <laughs> okay. All right. He mentioned in his email that he believed that there are dual prophecies to scriptures. I'll, I'll go even a step further. I believe that there's triple usages within prophetic statements at times, and maybe even more. Your question concerning the daughter of Zion is very intriguing to me. There's plenty of scriptures that we could go to. We could go to 1 Kings 19 and 21. We could go to Psalms 9 and 14. We could go to Isaiah 1 and 8, Isaiah 4 and 4, Isaiah 62 and 11, Micah 4 and 10, Zephaniah 3 and 14, and the list goes on. As the brother said, there's at least 34 mentions of this in the Old Testament. Now, let me make a statement right here. There's no doubt that in the Old Testament context, the daughter of Zion was originally attributed unto Israel alone. Zion was a place very near to Jerusalem. It became the city of David. This is where David resided at when he ruled over Jerusalem and all of Israel. So the daughter of Zion was technically speaking of the descendants of of Israel that dwelt in Zion, which was a holy place. It could be that this just applies to Jewish women. What if the Jewish woman is not a godly woman? She can't really qualify as a daughter of Zion because Zion's holy. So you've got to be a holy person to be connected to Zion. So if you're a daughter of Zion, you're one of those that has descended from Zion. You're a descendant of that which is holy. In other words, sons of Abraham, daughter of Zion is really basically the same term, or it's at least saying the same thing. But we also see how much of these prophecies actually apply to anyone who believes. If Israel were to walk away from the Lord, as we know they have, then these prophecies, are, are they still regarding Israel? They can't be, but they are regarding someone, right? I mean, it's got to be spoken for someone. It's got to be talking about somebody in particular. And if Israel has walked away from God, has all of these prophecies failed? No, because God's always going to have someone to fulfill the prophecy. I believe some of these scriptures are still very specific to Israel. And I'll tell you what, especially those scriptures that are particular to the region and the area that are concerned with the land of Israel. All right, if it's talking about Hebron, if it's talking about Lebanon, if it's talking about certain specific places, I don't believe that that's symbolic. I believe it's literally talking about that area, that area of Zion, that area of Jerusalem, that area where God gave unto Abraham. But there are several others that I believe are very neutral, and they're neutral in such a way, I believe those scriptures apply to all believers. 
I don't believe we've replaced Israel. I believe we've been joined to Israel. If they apply to all who believe, we definitely have the church being grafted into these blessings and these promises by God to all of his people, not to just his Jewish people, but to his people who believe, whether Jew or Gentile. I would also fully endorse the idea this probably applies to the 144,000 in Revelation 7, and here's why. This would put it all back upon the actual believing Jews at the end of time. These are true 100% Jewish people or Hebrew people, and this promise is to the 12 tribes of Israel that 12,000 from each tribe will be saved at the end. I'm not going to take the time right here to go in and dissect each verse that mentions the daughter of Zion. I could take the time and go through and show which ones I believe are solely for Israel, and I could show you which ones I think are for the church, or that includes all believers. That would take a very, very long time. Matter of fact, it'd take a good deal of time. But I believe anyone who has a discerning mind can read it and tell the difference, especially if you give it a close reading. Take note of what's being said in each verse, and you can understand, hey, this is specific to the land of Israel. Oh, this is mainly just about the people who are believing in God, and they're holy. They're descendants of that which is holy. God is holy, and he's commanded all of his followers to be holy. Remember what he said? I am holy, saith the Lord God Almighty. Be ye holy, for I am holy. So those who are trying to be holy, they're daughters of Zion, They're children of Abraham, and if you want to get technical, they're believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, whether Jew or Gentile. Okay, good answer, friend. Hope that answered your question. Friends, remember, if you have a Bible question or a question regarding how news and current events or things going on in our culture are connected to Scripture, drop us an email at dkministries1977 at yahoo.com. That's dkministries1977 at yahoo.com. We hope you've enjoyed this episode today, sharing God's Word. But until next time, may God bless you all. Be sure and come back Friday, February the 9th for special edition number 120, Created Perfect or Perfectly Created. for me, this I know, will it change my heart all around, put my feet back on the ground, got along, now for heaven I want to go, I want to go, I want to go. To that land where the milk and honey flow Oh, I've heard of such a place I can't go there by God's grace Never seen it, but I know I want to go